and hanging up the phone and at one level feeling that sense of power and another level realizing a few minutes later, what did you just do? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from James Stevens. A well-packed question carries its answers on its back as a snail carries its shell. My guest today, Hal Gregerson, literally wrote the book on questions. He's a senior lecturer at MIT's Sloan School of Management, a former executive director of the MIT Leadership Center, and a globally recognized thought leader on leadership and innovation. He's the author of several books, including Questions Are the Answer, where he shares a powerful approach to fostering radical innovation by encouraging inquiry. He's also a sought-after speaker and a lecturer who has spoken to audiences all over the world. Hal, welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Bob, thank you. And I can tell by that introductory quote that that I had no idea was coming. You know exactly <laughs> what you're going to talking about here, so I'm excited for this. <laughs> you know, you've got a little, little bit of a reputation, so... Uh, well, I, I'm always interested to start a little bit at the beginning. I, I'm curious, what tell us a little about your childhood and and, and both kind of when you discovered your your passion for leadership and and did questions sort of figure into your child? Was that an undercompensation or an overcompensation? That's a great question. Um, and the answer you'll see in a few minutes is overcompensation. So context is I've lived in 47 homes, uh, 21 cities three countries no five countries three continents just a lot of moves bob is this military military family no, no my father was a construction worker okay and he literally built a trailer that he pulled behind a one and a half ton truck that went across the united states to different job sites ranging from the western united states to upstate new york and everywhere in between and so by the time i was five we'd moved i think seven times Wow. So that notion of dropping into a new space and and trying to figure out what do I do here was just part of growing up. Yeah. And the space we lived in was really contained. It was an eight foot by 35 foot or so trailer. And my, I had two siblings. All of us had some form of ADHD or ADD. And you can just imagine us bouncing off the walls of that small environment yeah. space. And my father was incredibly industrious, super hard worker, um, mechanically brilliant in terms of his ability to sort of make sense of things. Um, but the contrast was for a variety of reasons that I understand better now than I certainly did as a kid. Um, his was, a, it was a world where the world revolved around him and, you know, in today's world, it would be controlling, probably emotionally abusive, sometimes a little physical, but I say those things not to put them down, but to put it in perspective, you know, like all of us, we're full of dark and light, you know, hidden yeah. wholeness, uh, flaws and strengths and all that kind of stuff. But when you're a little kid in that kind of environment, you're learning really fast how to protect yourself initially. Yeah. And then how, how do I potentially protect other people? And early on, the strategy was be quiet. And when I learned how to talk more and engage more, questions were actually a, an overcompensating strategy to avoid getting in trouble. Hmm. So instead of me being on the end of questioning, it was, you know, how can I frame, how, what question could I frame in this context to avoid the conversation getting me into trouble? And is that trouble with your family or trouble in school or trouble everywhere? <laughs> so I got kicked out of grade school probably five times for mostly stupid things, Bob. But yeah, you know, school was not. I love to learn, but I school is not my containing space. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I was it's getting not, for all, most ADD people. It is not. Yeah, no, just got. I got into a lot of trouble as a kid and had friends who got into a lot of trouble and. Um, so yeah, often it was trying to avoid being in more trouble. So the questions, was it was it to buy you time? Was it to put it back on the other person? What was the sort of go-to for for the questions? Were they intellectual curiosity or were they just sort of Socratic and flipping and <laughs> turning it around? 
So when I was like seven years old, my two buddies and I, we blew up with an M80, not knowing what an M80 really was. We blew up a bathhouse at a swimming pool and it burned down and we got in trouble. And so when I came home from that one, it was, you know, what kind of questions can I use here to avoid getting in trouble? So that was evasive sort of inquiry. Okay. So, so later on in life, I ran across Parker Palmer's work. And he basically frames teaching, and I and he would say leading, is creating a space where obedience to truth is practiced by a community of people. Hmm. And my my operating definition of that is how do I create a space where inquiry, you know, inquiry leads to insight and insight leads to positive impact. But having said that, our home was not that kind of a truth-seeking place in conversation. So it was, it was, it was mostly, there's a lot of danger zones there. And so you just, questions weren't used in that way. So how did you, where did you end up going to school or study or when you kind of got into a regular rhythm, what did you focus on? You know, I've been thinking about that, that an element of that conversation in preparing for this discussion. And I had the luxury in retrospect of a series of adults in my life who played a deeply inquisitive and caring role and so it was you know i've got a little i've got a cap over there my little league baseball cap i was i was not that great of a baseball player but my coach jaron sov was exceptional at helping me become better at it and at being confident in navigating the world when you know i had been broken down a lot yeah and then in high school, his father, Von Self, was the mayor of our city, and I had the chance to be elected mayor for the day out of our high school. And instead of just taking it on as a 24-hour, okay, we're doing this for fun kind of thing, I was very interested in politics. I think part of that was growing up in a politicized family. It's mm. like, you know, how are these power dynamics playing out? And, um, and so... Vaughn, after that day of being mayor for a day, he took me under his wing and took me to council of government meetings and different things. And, and I got very involved with politics early on. And I was very intrigued by how do people influence other people to do things, to do good things in the world? It's a relevant question today. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I actually did two internships um, with two different United States senators um, during college. And at the end of the second internship, because I I had ambitions, you know, I'd actually written down a little note somewhere in a file here, like I'm going to be a senator someday of the United States. And and so these people had emboldened me to have confidence in creating that kind of impact in the future. But having worked a couple of times in the Senate, I'll never forget one day making a phone call as an intern to the chief legal counsel of a very large quasi-governmental organization that we were investigating. And I remember making some statements that in retrospect were intended to intimidate about what we could potentially do to them and hanging up the phone and at one level feeling that sense of power and another level realizing a few minutes later, what did you just do? And it's that classic, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. It was that realization that this is a place that I'm not sure I'm capable of handling. Hmm. If I'm doing that as an intern, I'm not sure, I'm not confident in my ability to avoid the really insidious nature of of Washington, D.C. and that belt and and beltway. And power, yeah. Yeah, and power, yeah, yeah. So what was the road that got you from there to running the MIT Leadership Center? Because it, it doesn't sound like a straight line. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's related, it's related to one of my biggest failures early on in life, where I, I, was a, I was a wedding and portrait photographer in the midst of all this. So I was doing everything I said at the same time I was running my business as a, as a wedding and portrait photographer to pay my way through college. And... Early 20s, I took the wedding pictures of my best friend with a borrowed medium format camera. And three days later, when I picked up the 120 photos from that wedding, I realized I had asked the wrong question, which was, is the dark slide between the lens and the film taken out of the camera? 
And if you don't pull that dark slide out, you do not expose your film and you have no pictures. And I had, in the midst of all this, failed to ask that question. And I had to dial on my rotary dial black phone, my friend, and say, you know, you don't have any photos of your wedding. I did not know how to handle that kind of failure, Bob. And so when I talk about it, even to this day, I still feel emotional angst about that moment. You look emotional, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I ended up over the course of the next four to five years, few years, walking away from photography. But in the in the moment that happened, simultaneously, the last semester of my undergraduate degree, I am in a class, in a leadership class with Joe Bentley. And Joe was like fascinating. He was smart, inquisitive, curious, trying to figure out complex issues, wicked problems, and inviting us as students to do the same. And that's the moment where it's like all of this energy, all of this seeing, all of this learning, all of this curiosity about the world. It's like, I love this topic of what he's talking about. And that was the transition point. And then, boom off to master's degree, boom, you know, get my PhD. And then it's like study with really great colleagues over the last 30 years, the best leaders in the world trying to go global, trying to innovate, trying to lead transformation, now trying to lead digitalization. And and it's that kind of constant nonstop work that dropped me into the leadership center at MIT. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is Stop Eliminating Perfectly Good Candidates by Asking Them the Wrong Questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. I mean, the Leadership Center at MIT, I'm, this is exposure to some of the most incredible leaders, you know, in the world and thinking around leadership across multiple disciplines, like what, what are some of the cliff notes of what, what are the most common things that you have seen with really effective leadership and, and ineffective leadership? And are, are they consistent across all the different spectrums? Well, what's fascinating is I had spent 15 years with Clay Christensen and Jeff Dyer studying innovative leaders. So we had literally interviewed people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and yeah. amazing people um, in terms of innovation. And when I landed at MIT, I'm like, this place feels like these innovative companies. First of all, it feels like a dynamics of inside of one of those innovative companies. And then the second part was the people who are getting graduated out of here as alumni, they act like these people I've been studying. 
And so we literally, and Deborah and Kona and I decided to do a research study around what does it mean to be a leader coming out of MIT? And first of all, they don't like the word leader. Yeah. The leaders don't like the word leader. MIT doesn't like the word leader. MIT, the, the students, the people. Got coming it, out, like, we don't like the word leaders. Like, don't call me a leader. You know, leaders are people who like, like position and process and stability and power and control. And that's not me. And, and they all, they, we, we call it anti-leader leadership. And, and so what these folks love is like, give me a wicked, difficult, huge problem to take on. Right. And then, you know, if you're the quote unquote leader, Bob, it's the problem I'm following. It's not you. Because the problem itself, the challenge is bigger than either of us. It's like we need a lot of people with different depths of expertise, but a capability to cross those boundaries and talk about the challenge we care about. And it's all that stuff that I'd studied in these innovative companies. Frame and reframe status quo challenging questions. Get out there and experiment and rapidly prototype. Where's the data, both direct observational as well as other kinds of data? You know, how do we analyze that and make sense of it? And I just realized that's what these MIT leaders do. And so now I've been at MIT almost 10 years. I've, I've realized that, especially through the pandemic, especially in the times we're living in with generative AI and other things coming into our world and causing a lot of fear and a lot of um, lack of hope, we need more people who are, frankly, like these MIT people. They show up to take on challenges, not to show off. I know well, there's a hundred questions I could ask based on that. I, I, I know that they don't want to be called leaders, but do you think that someone who's not innovative at all can be a leader? Like if it's just totally stagnant, it, it feels like the definition of leader would be that you are also leading people to something, right? If you're just oh, yeah. overseeing what they're doing every day, that feels more like managing, right? No, absolutely. And and this is where um, it's just like two different domains. Bob. Yeah. You, you kind of know, you know, there's this notion of honestly, somewhere between 65 to 80% of senior leaders around the world fit the following category, which is they're generally in their 50s and 60s generationally. They're close to retiring or getting close to retiring. They have relatively limited limited tenures of three to four years in those roles as senior leaders, and maybe six years up, you know, upper end. And to a large degree, they are really comfortable mending and tending to the status quo. Right. There's not there's not an incentive to rock the boat. There's not an incentive to rock the boat. And you know, you jump jump over the the wall to this other set of leaders who you know, they can't not show up trying to figure out how could this place be better? How could we do what we're doing better? How could we do it differently? And that, to some degree, sounds short-term now, here and now focused, which it is. But in this work that I've been doing the last couple of years with Ed Catmull, the best of these best not only make an innovative impact in the present in a very positive way, but it's an incremental compounding growth logic towards something much bigger five, 10 years down the road. Yeah. They have a deep commitment to something bigger than themselves. The founder of Waze has a t-shirt he wears. I don't know if have you studied him. He says, fall, no, no, fall huh? in love with a problem. You know, that was his story was he just hated inefficiency. He hated waiting in line. He hated getting places. And Waze was born out of him fascinated with that problem. Exactly. And that's the it, Dr. Lisa Su, who got all her degrees at MIT and then went on to become the CEO of AMD, the chip making company. Yeah. In 2013, when AMD was at its lowest point possible in terms of performance, they were ready to shut the sort door. of where Intel is now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and so it was, and she learned early on from a, from a colleague run towards problems, Lisa. Now, Pat Gelsinger did the same thing at Intel when he came back a few years ago. You know, they had a decade of, I would argue, leaders who were not creating the future. Yeah, they're right. They missed mobile completely. They missed multiple opportunities. And Pat's come back with, I think, a viable, bona fide 
future that they could operate towards, but it's going to take time. And it's just, yeah, you're right. Super hard. Uh, yeah. It, things move so quickly these days that if you are playing from a deficit, you don't have a lot of time to get it right. But so let's talk about your most recent book. Questions are the answer. I, I find it really interesting how you connect the kind of power of inquiry to innovation at, at its core. So what led you to focus on on questions for that book? Did you just you realize Socrates was right? <laughs> um, number one, that questioning element of Socrates, yes, was right, Bob. You're right on that. But what I realized, you know, what led to that book was not just innovation. It was in the in the 90s when companies were going global. I interviewed A.G. Laffley before he became the CEO of, of Procter & Gamble. He asked me, Bob, more questions than I asked him. Yeah. He was deeply inquisitive before he ever became the CEO of Procter & Gamble. Then, you know, I fast forward to transformation and change and then to innovation. And the common theme in these outcomes that leaders cared about was, one of the skill sets was they were super good at framing a question someone else didn't frame. Because they didn't have the answer or they wanted to know other people's perspectives? Because number one, all of them, now in retrospect, because I didn't have this language before coming to MIT, all of them in retrospect were challenge-driven leaders. And, by, and, and so by definition, if I'm tackling a challenge that I do not have the answer to, I have to be asking questions of myself and other people in order to extract new data that could create a solution that could move this thing forward. Well, that's an interesting connection. Do people that ask a lot of external questions genuinely tend to question themselves more? The best of the best, absolutely. Hmm. The best of the best. So, you know, Remy Hossaby, who, you know, at, at Deep Mind, he calls some of the best people at Deep Mind glue people. They are deeply entrenched in at least two disciplines or ways of seeing the world. And that enables them to collide these galaxies. And in the collision, you get these questions that you otherwise wouldn't ask. And so that's where, you know, absolutely, if I get out of my routine, out of my geographic localized office space, if I get out of our organizational boundaries, if I start crossing into domains where there's a super high probability, I'm going, I am going to be provoked. Yeah, I think that's an interest, very interesting environment matters too, right? Getting out of your box, seeing things different ways. I, I remember spending two to three weeks of my family in Australia and a few years ago, and it just seeing how the tipping was just so different and how you paid for food was different. And when I came back, it was like, huh, that was just, I, just more comfortable and different and people in the U.S. And I remember writing an article about a Friday four people in the U.S. have this as something like they just cannot possibly see that tipping could not be as it is here. And it's not that way in the rest of the world and the rest of the world works. And actually yeah. you're seeing it going crazy here now. And people are saying, a question is, wait, am I tipping in this business because they have a new POS and I'm not tipping in this other business that does the same thing? Like it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Well, and that kind of, I don't know, have you had the chance to live in more than one country? I haven't lived. I've spent a lot of time traveling. And every time I travel, I have different ideas, different thought processes yeah, come back yeah. with, huh, yeah. what if we did that here, right? But, but Yeah, and what, what's really interesting, Bob, is that living in another country for long enough to get deeply sort of admired, enmeshed in it, or having a bicultural family where you yeah. have parents from two different cultures doubles the probability that we will ask that novel, unique question that will lead to something valuable. Yeah. I mean, when you described it before, it, it, when I think about the the Medici effect, right, but the Renaissance, yeah. like all of yeah. these things have always been multidisciplinary people coming together with new perspectives. You know, uh, David yeah. Epstein's book, Range, I think yeah. there's a lot of focus on specialization these days rather than yeah. things that seem irrelevant, but bring interesting perspective, you know, to, uh, I, I don't know if David Smith, we had him on the podcast, if, if you know him, but this company Cotopaxi, which has been an incredible growth story, like a lot of the colors and the things that they do and stuff came from him living in South America, 
for a lot of his life. How does our frame of questioning change when we tend to exit the environment that we are in the most? I mean, you're very aware of this, that transition zones are the ripest opportunity to see things we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're talking about here. So it could be that I'm traveling to a different country, transition zone. It could be that I'm living in a different country, transition zone. Could be that I've just taken a new job, transition zone. Could be that COVID just started. I'm working from home for the first time, transition home. Every one of those transition zones provides the richest chance to uncover what we don't know we don't know. And that's where questions come in. It's like, are we putting ourselves into transition zones where we're getting um, assaulted is the wrong word, but confronted, um, barraged with data that's signaling our map to the world are wrong. So someone like Jeff Wilkie, who, you know, he, he was the, most recently the CEO of Consumer Worldwide at Amazon, and then he made a conscious choice to leave and found an organization called Rebuild Manufacturing to try to rebuild a manufacturing base in the yeah. U.S. that was dead. But Jeff made a conscious choice when he graduated from college to not go to the strategy group at headquarters at the company that was hiring him. That's where they wanted him. And Jeff was like, no. I need to learn how to operate in a manufacturing environment, in a plant, in a unionized plant where there's a lot of conflict. Please, I'll join you. I love your company, but you've got to put me there, not in the strategy group. How many MBAs would do that? Not, not very many. <laughs> yeah, but that's what except we're talking all, Except all the great companies I know, their onboarding programs look like that. They look like getting on the line and talking. This is one of the things where I think COVID... It was sort of one of these things where you, where, where the water goes out and you see who's not wearing their bathing suit or the tie goes out, where a lot mm. of companies had pretty horrible onboarding programs. But the fact that they were in person, they got away with it. So Jamie comes in and Jamie, go follow Hal around. Just see what Hal does, right? That, mm -hmm. But all the companies I knew that were world class, you never hit your desk until the third week of the job. You came in and you you went in the call center. You did this. You okay. Just so you were exposed to all of these aspects of 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 the business and it was always planned out. So you could kind of understand these different perspectives. And I just saw that the CEO of Uber for the first time, I drove an Uber for two weeks and had all kinds exactly. of insights <laughs> about, you know, what <laughs> probably the assumptions that the executive team had was fundamentally different. I would assume though, that, you know, a lot of questioning, I, I wanted two points, because I think that there are some natural impediments today, both in an organization and in higher education. Um, and you, you seem qualified to answer both of those. So in the organization, obviously, psychological safety is important, you know, to, to having questioning, but what can a leader do to create the environment where it's not, I think first people have to feel comfortable asking questions, and then, and then that has to become part of the culture in a different way. But I, I'm sure in a lot of places the question is a question that is truth to power, you know, is not is not the way to get promoted. No, you're right. And um it's as straightforward, Bob, I think, as if I were to ask you, Bob Blazer, what's your biggest challenge right now? Now you could choose to answer that. Yeah. And and, and if you do, you know, tell me quickly, what's your biggest challenge? Uh, too many priorities. Okay. So if we take that as the challenge, Bob, it's like in a work setting, revealing our biggest challenges can be dangerous in some teams and organizations. Because it's seen as, as a weakness. It's seen as a weakness and that kind of a thing. And so if that's your biggest vulnerable, challenge. Yeah. Vulnerable. The fact that you or I cannot share our biggest challenges is one of the biggest signals as to whether or not we're psychologically safe or not. And as a leader, it's a signal to me that I'm going to have to pay whatever price it's going to take for you, if you're working with me, Bob, to honestly tell me what your biggest challenge is. And until we can do that, we will be stuck in the status quo. It's just reading a book or someone's book or something about a leader who would call up every store every day and ask them what their biggest problem was. <laughs> like That was his like number one thing. And then he would brainstorm brainstorm we call up the manager just randomly i can't remember what business it was but it sounds like that would fall yeah it was a successful one put it that way 
<laughs> that's the spirit of it. And that's where, you know, Clayton Christensen had this beautiful phrase because he worked with me early on on the work for the book for questions of the answer. And then he just got sick and had other things to take care of. But but Clay said the best leaders actively seek passive data. It's not the data that they're getting actively through the system, but it's the passive stuff that you have to work for. And that's what the CEO of Uber was doing. And that's what this other person you're just talking about was doing, was just actively going out of their way to get disconfirming data to what they believe. Right. Not not the data they're being presented either. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Disconfirming data. That's so interesting. I Because I think everyone today, it just tries to... It's all confirmation. But what other data could I get to prove that my hypothesis is correct, not incorrect? Right. Versus Hassel Plattner told me a few years ago, who co-founded SAP, it's like, every day I wake up wondering, what am I dead wrong about? Yeah. About 0.1% of people would say that or think that. I, that's, it, it is true. <laughs> but, you know, those are the ones, frankly, that change the world. Right. Derek Sivers, who we had on the podcast, who's one of the most brilliant thinkers I've ever spoken with said, my favorite thing in the world is to change my mind or have my mind changed. And I was thinking, no one says that, (laughs) but he's, you know, that has a lot to do with why he's really smart about a lot of things. Yeah, no, totally. You know, I I don't know if you've uh, had the chance to look at Steve Jobs autobiography in his own words. No, I I read the other one, the the Walter, yeah, Isaac one. No, this okay. so it just barely came out yeah. through the Jobs Foundation, and it's available free to anybody. You can get it online. Um, but especially after Jobs got fired from Apple and then came back, he was a different leader, and most narratives of him do not portray that. Hmm. But he really went out of his way to hire people who challenged him. Yeah, because they focus on the early. A lot of them focus on the they, early. They yeah. focused on the early, and it makes a lot better copy that the only thing Steve Jobs can be is a jerk, you know. Yeah. But that's just not the reality for the latter part of his life and work, and for the most part. And and but what I'm trying to say here is he was just like the leader you were talking about. It's like I want people around me who will push me to the point that I will change my mind. Otherwise, we're stuck here. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So someone said recently, uh, I think it was Kim Scott when I was talking to her. I'm sure you've heard of this or like this. She said, if you want to know if you have psychological safety in an organization or in a team, 
tell them to do something impossible and see who speaks up. Yeah. <laughs> and what's fun about that from Ken's perspective is, is that, is that she's basically inviting people to um, get excited about big challenges, right? The impossible. Yeah. yeah. Or, or to be, or is it okay to say the leader, like we can't do it like that, like, or it can't be done. You know, literally no, it was, Yeah. Yeah, or or is it, which is basically reframing the challenge to the point that it's realizable, it's doable, it's impossible but doable. You know, we can get there. Yeah, right. And so this is where I come back to you know some other work that that I'm doing with Amy Edmondson is around some of these methodologies that I've been using and learned over the last twenty years around asking better questions. Some of them actually build greater psychological safety. The act of asking questions is a means by which we can have more trust, be willing to speak up more. So if we come back to your example of, you know, I've just got too many priorities, Hal. If we were to set a timer for two minutes, Bob, and both of us ask nothing but questions, we probably would get about 10 questions in two minutes. And at the end of that two minutes, if we collected the data on it, you and I, 85% of the time, would feel more psychologically safe with each other. Hmm. And what happens there is that we both express vulnerability around a challenge that we're stuck on, and we are both constrained by a process in this question verse process where we cannot answer the questions, we cannot explain why we're asking the questions, and that lack of explanation why and answer to creates enough space for better questions to come into the situation and as a result, move things forward. And simultaneously, we feel more connected, more trusted with each other. So if a leader is listening to this discussion right now and they are self-identifying that I am someone that needs to ask more questions or do this or otherwise, what, and then they need a little rehab, <laughs> question rehab. What would you suggest? What are some simple things they could go do tomorrow with their team and their organization to start pushing down this path? Step one, what challenge do I care about as a leader? Hmm. And if I don't care, I better find one. <laughs> Step two, does that challenge have any connection to the team I'm working with and the challenges they care about? And if I don't do those first two things around what are the dominant, you know, cared about challenges around here, questions are both annoying and probably unproductive. They're politicized probably around issues that we shouldn't be caring about. So once we get, oh, these are concrete challenges that we care about, then it becomes how might we ask better questions? And there's a natural way and an unnatural way, half natural. It's the CEO of, um, of Uber strategy, which is get up, get out, get into the world, put yourself somewhere, someplace with some person where you are going to be wrong and uncomfortable and stop and reflect about it. That's what the CEO of, of Uber was doing. And so do that over and over, over and over related to your challenge. That's the harder, more time-consuming process but if we do that, it becomes habitual, and it's a way of finding and solving challenges better. But your core thing that you started with there is that I think is an interesting thing from the strategy standpoint, the innovation, is that businesses have to be solving something, or they have to have a core raison d'etre challenge at any time, right? Is yep. that? Yep. Yeah. yeah. You guys can't see how, but he is nodding profusely to that one. <laughs> <laughs> and Bob, this is where... I mean, it, it sounds almost like you you asked me, how do you ask the better question, become more inquiry-driven as a leader? And it almost feels like I'm avoiding the question by saying, well, first of all, step back and like, do you have a challenge you care about that's worthy of your effort and other people around? You? Right. And 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 once you get that, then it's like, then it's it's hard work, but smooth sailing. And so when I when I meet with leaders and they're like, we want to be more innovative and inquiry driven here, the first thing I ask them is, how do you find and solve challenges? Yeah. And if it's largely in an office space, I know exactly how they're stuck. Now, the other part is there are very concrete things I can do as a leader to like become better at asking questions. So the first thing, you know, we started today, Bob, with 
talking about my childhood. But it's like there's a question journey map we use in the in the work we do where imagine stepping back for a few minutes and thinking at home growing up, K to 12 or 5 to 18 sort of school years, technical university education, first professional role, first manager role, current role, six spaces. What happened when I asked tough, fearless questions in those places on average? How did people respond to it? How psychologically safe were those environments? And what I found is when people step back and start thinking about their, their history of their relationship with questions, some realize, crap, I have not been very supportive on this journey. And others realize, wow, I've had a lot of good mentors along the path. And then it's like, now that I've done that for myself, do you have good answers to those same questions for the people you work with and care about? What's their journey? What was their question journey up until this point? Because even if we find a good challenge, and I've got three people who have literally had questions crushed throughout their life, ones that could move things forward, even if we find a good challenge, they're going to be hesitant to say much. So that leads me into my next question. And I know you work in a specific kind of area of higher education, but uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we had the Cornell kind of decision on, on the staff on the, on the trigger warning request a few weeks ago. Uh, My oldest is in school. I've been reading a lot about this, you know, read Jonathan Haidt's book, Coddling the American Mind. There's a real problem in that in higher education. That is not safe to ask questions in what should be a, uh, there's a preferred narrative in a lot of discussions, and it just seems antithetical to what our education system is is supposed to do. And I know a lot of people who have general intellectual curiosity around something are probably scared to ask a question because they don't want to be called out. I know that's a loaded thing, but I, your perspective on it would be very interesting to me. I had a conversation with Clay Christensen about, Christensen about this before he passed away. And we talked about Harvard Business School, and I think it's the same in other other major business schools around the world, which is the most innovative students at the best schools learn really fast in school to not challenge the professor. Even even in a case study environment? (laughs) Even in a case, they learn that the professor wants us to challenge, but not challenge their fundamental framework or belief around how we maneuver through this case study. And so literally 80, 90% of these really cutting edge, innovative students learn really fast. I'm a lot better off hiding my best questions for after I get out of school, which is tragic. But but how are you going to hide them for after you get out of school? And I think this starts before business school. But how are you going to hide them if you learn if you learn how to if you practice something you get good at it? So I yeah. don't know where where then are you going to feel safe asking those questions and when you can be fired versus if, you know in a classroom you can't be fired they maybe get a B. Well, and that's where you know if you were in Clay Christensen's class, yeah. he would say at the beginning, I want you to challenge these frameworks, not just, you know, the ones I'm telling others, mine. And if you do a great job during this semester with me, we will see my frameworks differently. Students are initially hesitant around that, but they believe it because he actually invites it over and over. And so in this world of division and divisiveness and and politicized this way or that way kind of world Uh, I love Elie Wiesel's quote, which is, answers divide us, questions unite us. And and the notion is, how can we open up like Clay did that sort of space? Well, first, you have to be willing to show up and sit with someone you don't agree with. That's phase one. (laughs) And then phase two is to ask a question that you're genuinely curious about the answer to and you might actually be surprised where that person's opinion came from or how it was formed or or otherwise but but it seems like a you got to be in the same room and then b you got to be actually intellectually curious enough to be willing to ask a question and listen to the answer rather than already ready to go on your diatribe yeah yeah no totally and i i don't want this to feel like i'm bumping into that question burst space but there's an example that i think exemplifies this really well yeah where I was doing a workshop at MIT for the administrative assistants who are helping the faculty do their work. 
And there was an extra spot in a trio of people that were sharing their challenges and spending three or four minutes generating questions about each challenge in order to move things forward. I joined a group of three administrative assistants. This is out of my normal conversation space. They shared their two challenges. We generated questions. Then it was mine. And mine was the following. I honestly don't know, and it's been really difficult over time, to figure out what things to give the assistant to do. It's just tough for me to figure that out. And I explained a little more. Then we got to that moment of, okay, ask nothing but questions. This courageous stranger, administrative assistant, looked me in the eye, Bob, and she said, Hal, do you have control issues? And it was like really uncomfortable because it I could feel the arrow going right through my uh, heart. He nailed it. Yeah. And then I just had to be quiet and mostly listen to 15 or 20 other questions being generated. But she had the first one right off the bat. And, and that's where I think what we're talking about here, Bob, whether it's a question burst process or just a normal way of engaging with people. Yeah. If we're not regularly getting those arrow shots to the heart, we are living in a deeply limited world and we're probably limiting the world of the people who are right around us. Yeah, I mean, the simplest thing sometimes, I think, in a works, even in a workspace, and we really pushed this with our team during clients, particularly in COVID, what mm -hmm. is, how are you? Like, how's it going? So, you know, the answer sometimes are really, like, really bad. Like, my husband, you know, I'm going through a divorce, dumped me with the kids on the week. So now I actually understand why this person is frustrated, yeah. short-tempered. It has nothing to do with the work that's going on or otherwise, but just that yeah. open-ended question to know... What's going on with our life? Totally. And this is where there's another thing that I would suggest to other leaders or people, anybody related to what we were talking about right now, which is audit the questions that you're asking and being asked for 24 hours, literally. Write down all the questions that come out of your mouth. Write down the questions you never ask, but they're in your head. Write down questions you get asked as appropriate. You know, you're not going to try to offend people in doing that, but as much as you possibly can, capture all of those questions. And then step back and look at patterns. Right. Are they are they transactional versus relationship? Yeah, right? Totally yeah. transactional versus relational energy giving, energy taking. Um, one of the dimensions I suggest looking at is related to what you were just describing. It's what is my starting point of inquiry? Is it who, what, when, how, where, how? Is it what, if, how, might? Those kinds of things. Nikki Sparshot became the CEO of Unilever Australia two weeks before COVID lockdown. Didn't know anybody. Right. Through Zoom, like you and me, she had to engage with her people. Her two go-to questions pre-COVID were, what are we talking about today? And how do we solve it? I love that. I was actually thinking as you said that, I could see if you went to your list and they were all questions about why aren't we doing this, right? Versus yep. how yep. could we? That's a totally different mindset, right? Why aren't we? Exactly. Why aren't we? Why aren't we? Right. And, and and she had not done this audit, but she was smart enough and self-aware enough to realize that her typical starting point with her questions, it, it's totally inappropriate for that early COVID days. And so she switched it to, first, how are you today? What you just asked. Then it was some version of, why are you even here? You know, what's your purpose? What's driving you? She was doing everything she could to get at. And she might, I know that background isn't actually true, but she might be looking at those, she might be looking at those um, ski, water skis over yeah. there and say, hey, Bob, you know, tell me about the water skis. What's the story there? When she got through two or three years of COVID, she said, I felt more intimacy with my people over Zoom than I ever did before COVID in face-to-face -face interactions. So say that, what was her name again? Nikki Sparshot, S-P-A-S-H-O-T-T. -T. And the two questions were? What, what The first, her, her pre-COVID questions were, What's the challenge? What's the issue? What are we trying to solve for here? And then it was, how do we do it? But it was all work focused. It was like, I'm busy. Yeah. I've got a lot to do. Let's get at it. Yeah. 
But then it's like, no, how are you doing, really? And the second question really was, who are you? Why are you here? And then once we sort of understand that, oh, what are we trying to solve for? How are we going to go do that? Yeah. So same questions, but just started with a more opener. Yeah, we. Uh, this was during COVID. We would say to our team, you have no idea what's going on with people. So by yeah. saying to them, how's it going? And they say, it's going terrible. My, I got yeah. I'm, I got homeschool going over here. My mother's in the hospital. I'm really worried about her. Like, yeah. it really helps to know that person's mindset before launching in. Well, let me tell you about our marketing results this month, which is the last thing they're interested in talking about and what was really interesting during that time and and i think the team taking that that approach was that if you objectively ask them like how our clients were doing or thought of what we were doing they would say like <laughs> they seem unhappy they seem frustrated they seem whatever we got mm -hmm. the highest net promoter score we had ever had kind of right in the middle of that so they were just generally i think stressed and worried and a bunch of things but but appreciative that people were you know talking to them from a human standpoint and generally kind of less transactional but it was interesting because i think people would have thought it was the opposite but the data came in showing it was it was not the case that is so cool i mean i, I applaud you you know for, for me, taking but, yeah. that kind of approach as a team yeah another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Well, the last area I want to talk about that'll be, I think, change the future of questions and answers. And I know you spent some time in this is uh, is generative AI, um, hmm. right? You got a lot of people asking questions. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe they feel more comfortable. Here's the irony. I think maybe some people feel more comfortable asking questions to a robot without the judgment or feedback and getting that data back. And, and that can be a really bad <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy in terms mm -hmm. of less human connection and feedback and otherwise. So what are, what are you seeing of this technology that's seemingly going to impact all aspects of our lives? I've been collecting data on this for the last 12 months. And here's what I've learned from the data, Bob, is that if I choose to engage with something like chat GPT, it, number one, the engagement with that kind of technology it causes me to be more wrong, more uncomfortable, and more reflectively quiet than I normally am. Why does it cause you to be more wrong? Because the data back is not necessarily correct? Sometimes it's because the data isn't correct, but at other, I often use it to generate questions, not answers. Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, you're going to hear my clickety-clack here, but I'm going to type in real quick, which is um, my challenge is uh, having too many priorities. What questions should I be asking myself to make progress on this challenge? Uh, give me 20 questions. And so it starts pumping them out. And, you know, my experience with doing it, using it that way, for example, is that 80 to 90% of the questions are ones, yeah, I kind of know about those. But there's often one or two that are like, whoa, that's helpful. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of it that way. So it's that kind of literal that I'm talking about that that kind of engagement can cause that sort of surprise. So but why has it caused them to be wrong? It, it's intellectually wrong to me means that there's some part of my mental map of the way the world operates that is off. It's just not accurate. And the emotional surprise is often discomfort or uncomfortable. Huh. And then the behavioral reflective quiet is I can I can sit with that. I can live in this negative capability mode of just sitting with the uncertainty and what does all this mean for me? But the use of it, I mean, if I think of that's a specific application. You know, there's some interesting questions here. But the point is, if I think of my role as a professor at work, just as an example. My 
current engagement with these technologies is causing me to rethink how do I approach teaching? How do I approach research? Right. Who am I as a teacher, as a researcher? Um, I use Dolly too because I'm also a professional photographer at one level, and it's the same question. Right. Denial is the the schools are educated. People want to pretend this thing didn't exist and put it back in the box. Does not seem to be a winning strategy. That's like putting the internet back in the box. It's like putting the steam engine back in the box. Like it's just not not a winning strategy, right? And so last night at dinner, I was talking, one of our granddaughters is in middle school. And I, and I asked her, what's the approach there? And they're like, they completely illegal. Don't touch this stuff related to school. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. Because guess what, granddaughter? If you were in my colleague's class at UC Santa Barbara, um, he used to be with me here at MIT, Matt Bean. Matt Bean would be requiring you to use right. ChatGPT on every assignment to figure out how might you use it to become better at what you do. Perfect example. And I've been really working with my kids on like, how can they use it in a smart way? So my son had a, he was actually preparing for a test and used it to like, what are the questions I'm likely to be asked on this? It turned into like a live study guide. Like what questions am I likely to be asked based on this topic on a AP history test, right? So it's questions about questions, which oh, is- no, Exactly. Right, which is training. And another time we we put one of his papers in, daughter asked me to edit a paper of hers and I edited it, but then I put it in and I said, give me constructive feedback on this from like you were a ex professor and how mm -hmm. could it improve and what grade would you give it? And mm -hmm. so it, it gave a whole bunch of things around. It was almost yes. like getting a free read from a, a TA, right, on your paper. It wasn't saying write yep. it for me, but what what would the feedback you give? And this is really exactly. interesting. I said, this was the most fascinating thing. If I made those changes, I think it said B plus or B, B plus. And I said, if I made those changes that you just suggested, what would the grade be? And it said A minus. <laughs> so I was like, interesting. I was like, so what would it take to make it an A? And it gave a whole other list of suggestions. Yeah, that's yeah. a super powerful. If you actually want to get better and you just don't want the answer, and again, I think for some people it's going to be easier to take criticism from a maybe a machine than a yeah. Than, yeah. than a human. Like, there's some really powerful ways of of learning there. I love those examples, and and what you're doing is you're exploring it in a terrain that you really care about. The yeah. challenge that your 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 kid cared about and you care about, you're exploring it that way, and and you're using it smartly. You know, it's a combination of what questions should I be asking, or how might I revise what I've already done, as opposed to giving it full responsibility for my expertise right. and capability. That's stupid. The the line I hear people say is, "You're not going to lose your job to AI. You're going to lose your job to someone who knows how to use AI." Right, and I I think that's a look. I'm working on my next book. The hardest part, you've done this, is research, right? It's exhausting. I, I need a study that looks like this or that's about this topic. I mean, it can save you 99% on finding relevant research. Now, you have to validate that research. You have to check that it's yeah. right. That's right. There's, there's no, to me, there's no pride in the grind of searching through card catalogs or internet or whatever to find what you're looking for. But if you get 30 things, then you can go say, oh, wow, these, this one's really relevant. Oh, this, yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, who wouldn't want, <laughs> I, how could you ignore that as, as a tool to improve whatever you're doing? It's like a free research assistant. <laughs> no, totally, totally. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. And this is where I said to our granddaughter last night, I'm like, I see why your, why your teachers and administrators at your school are not letting you use this, you know, but if you take a hiatus of three, five years while you're in school and don't do what you just described, Bob, with your family, yeah. you're going to be behind. And yeah. that that's just not a wise thing. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah, it's it's never good to try to freeze the current. Actually, I give a ton of credit. Uh, when it first came out and all the schools were freaking out and otherwise, yeah. a, a superintendent in a town near us had GPT write the letter to experience explaining what <laughs> chat GPT was. And that was the entire thing that he sent to parents just so they could understand the power of it. And I was like, that's really yeah. good. That's funny. That has some like humility to it. Like, that's good. That's really cool. And so when we engage with it, the way you're describing, 
What the data I've been collecting uh, is signaling is it causes us to be more wrong, uncomfortable, reflectively quiet. It also increases the velocity or the number of questions we're asking, the variety, and the deep level of novelty. And so when we take advantage of that technology smartly, it can actually enable us to ask the better question to open up these completely new avenues. Uh, we could we could talk about this uh, all day, but I you know I normally my last question is normally about a professional or personal mistake you you learned the most from, but you kind of answered that really deeply for us early on. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let you end with a question. What what what's the question that you want everyone <laughs> to contemplate who's listening to this episode? What is the longest time horizon? How many years out is the most important project you're working on right now? How far out is that project? How many years out is it going to take to achieve that project? Now, that may sound like that's a stupid question, Hal. But the problems we're facing today, generative AI and interaction with the world, um, deep divisiveness, climate change and challenges, the list goes on and on. These are problems that are not going to be solved overnight. Yeah. Their challenges are going to take five to 10 or 15 years to solve. And some of them will never be solved. We'll simply make progress on them. But if the only challenges we're tackling in our day-to-day -day work have short-term horizons, one year, two year, three years, we are not only shortchanging ourselves, we're shortchanging our collective future. I honestly believe that, Bob. The challenges are so big that we have to learn how to step out of that short-term mentality into what something bigger than me, big enough and worthy of my effort that other people would want to get involved with, that we could we could nudge and move something forward here. Sounds like a, a bunch of good business ideas might come out of answering that question. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Vivian Meng is a theoretical neuroscientist theoretical neurophysicist she's got a really complex name of what she does but she does really cool stuff they now have neural implants that can cause me to be 10 percent better at asking questions mm -hmm. and so this stuff we're doing at chat gpt is we're wandering in a, into a very very different kind of future world but the cool thing about vivian is she said, you know, purpose that really matters for us as individual human beings has to transcend our lifetime. Yeah. If I can show up and solve this, it's not a purpose. It's just a big challenge. Well, that it's like, what am I committed to that's much bigger than me? That, that will outlast my life even. And, you know, if I think of the work you're doing and the work that I'm trying to do with colleagues, I think what we're trying to do is give them a few more tools to discover that kind of reason for being and being more capable of getting at it and moving it forward. 100%. All right, Hal, thank you for uh, joining us today. Thank you. Your, your work on, on leadership and innovation and questioning, I think, has had a, a profound impact on a lot of business leaders, and I hope a lot of listeners to the Elevate podcast as well. Thank you, Bob, for all, not only the questions, the conversation, but your commitment to making a really big impact, a good positive impact. Thank you. All right. To our listeners, thank you for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Hal's work and questions are the answer, which you can buy wherever books are sold on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening to Apple Podcasts, it's super easy to scroll down and leave a rating or review. Thanks again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. 
On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.